0: You're listening to Season 6, Episode number 7 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I talk about the apostolic imagination and rethinking the West, particularly the North American context of the United States and Canada. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Well, welcome back, folks. It is great to be with you once again. Thanks so much for checking out Season 6, Episode number 7 of Strike the Match. I know, uh, I think I said this in the last episode, I know it has been uh, some time since I uh, put out the podcast previous episode we're still in season 6 we have not come to an end of that yet we still have a few more episodes left but um but i know it's been a while since uh episode 6 was 6 was out um sorry about that but um it's been one of those crazy uh, crazy years for all of us right and so uh we're moving into um this new year of 21 Kind of odd to even say that. I feel like I have to say twenty twenty one, but uh, in this year of twenty one, and um got this out to you all today. I, I'm hoping that I'll do a better job uh, as we continue with the, the next few episodes uh, of season six. Season six will be wrapping up soon, uh, but there are a few left to go, and then, uh, Lord willing, it'll probably be in the um, generally in the fall before uh, Season 7 will launch again, but we still have some left to go in uh, In this season. Uh, we've got uh, some guests that will be joining us, and then I will be uh, wrapping up the uh, Apostolic Imagination series that I started at the beginning of Season 6. And uh, that brings us to uh, today's topic. So we're continuing in the uh, series today. If you have not had a chance to Uh, go back, or if you've not had a chance to listen to the other podcasts in this uh, season that uh, address the apostolic imagination, I want to encourage you to go back and check those out. Uh, There may be some things that you'll hear in this uh, episode today uh, that I'm just assuming that you know, I'm assuming that you've been with me on this journey, and so um, if there uh, is question uh, or confusion, then I would encourage you to check those, out, uh, check those out first and see if your questions are not answered um, in one of those previous episodes. So, uh, so today, talking about the apostolic imagination and rethinking the West. Now, when I say West, I, I recognize that that um, needs some definition. So you've got the traditionally Western countries of the world— which uh, would be like Western Europe, uh, U.S. and Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, you also have West as like this ideology that's that's out there as well. Uh, specifically for this podcast today, I am thinking about uh, the United States and Canada. And primarily it's because uh, that's, that's where the uh, overwhelming majority of my uh my ministry um has taken place and my familiarity uh, with with those contexts are are uh, the strongest and so um so I want us to think about this notion of of rethinking the west when it comes to the disciple making work of the church the global disciple making work of the church uh related to clearly her her apostolic task that she's been called to so I'm not I'm not saying that this notion of rethinking the West is something that's new. In fact, uh I want to go back and and bring up the name Leslie Nubigan. So uh Newbigin, um, you know, he he spent many years in Asia as a, as a missionary. And when he came back home to um to uh to to his Britain, he uh he realized that the society that he left uh, was no longer there. The uh, home to which he returned was a different place, and and he began to to talk about. Now, this would have been in the mid twentieth century, and so he began to talk about the need for um, the gospel to to reengage the traditionally Western context. Uh, in fact, he actually, you know, he. He made this statement. He and I'll I'll quote him here. He says, "Quote, there is no higher priority for the research work of missiologists than to ask the question of what would be involved in a genuinely missionary encounter between the gospel and this modern western culture." So what he was saying was was that the the church really needed to rethink what it meant to engage the context in which she finds herself being called the Western world. Now, sometime later, particularly in the 80s, definitely in the 90s, uh, you have um, some, some groups in the States uh, that formed, for example, the uh, Gospel in Our Culture Network. Uh, many mainline um, uh, church leaders connected to that group. Heavily influenced by the uh, the work of Leslie Newbegin in the um, the mid twentieth century, late twentieth century, and uh, nineteen ninety eight, you have Daryl Guter publishing the book. Uh, he edited the book. He published a book called The Missional Church, and in that book, it it really drew attention to Newbegin's thinking about okay, what does it look like for the the church in the West to 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 rethink what it means to engage her context with the gospel. It drew attention to Newbegin as North Americans are concerned. So the, the conversations have been happening for some time in uh, Western Europe, but as far as North America, it was really in the in the nineteen nineties. And so it's it's out of that time period that we enter into the missional church movement um, and and some other uh, related uh, discussions and conversations. It, was, it goes back to Newbegin. It goes back to that question about the notion of reengaging Western culture. But, but here's the thing. Here, here's, my, here's my concern. Um, while I think that, that Newbegin's work has been most helpful, it's been most helpful to me, it, it, never really, it never really brought about, it never resulted in the necessary paradigm shift for apostolic work, at least not in North America. Um, much of the, the missiology that was developed and advocated uh, that came out of the Gospel and Our Culture Network in the 1990s and early 21st century, um, much of the missiology developed became filtered through what I have called, and you've heard me say this before, and you've read about this on my blog, it became filtered through a pastoral imagination to be implemented through established church structures that were already in place. And And so even though this phrase, the West as a mission field, has grown in popularity since the turn of the century, the language of mission or missional obviously is regularly used. But the truth is, is that there's very little apostolic function that occurs in the North American context. So, So what I want us to think about today is this concept of rethinking the West and it really involves at least a couple things. One, I think that it helps us to to recognize that we need to understand and apply the apostolic imagination to the church's labors in the traditionally western world. And number 2, at the same time, when we rethink the west in light of the apostolic imagination, it also challenges us to Consider how we as the body of Christ are using our resources and opportunities throughout the world. Uh, specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about the notion of our finances and, and even the notion of partnerships as well, developing partnerships with majority world church leaders. Now, of course, you've, you've heard me say before that the greatest needs, both physical and spiritual needs, are outside of the traditionally Western context. Um, However, in this podcast, I'm, I'm turning a hard look toward the United States and then also to Canada as well. So let me talk about this concept that you've heard me refer to in previous episodes as the pastoral hegemony. Now, keep in mind, I, I do not consider myself an apostle. Um, in my calling, in my background, in almost 20 years, um, my ministry has involved pastoral leadership. That's who I was. That's uh, who I still am to some degree. Even though primarily I'm involved in training a lot of pastors now, and uh, discharging my ministry heavily through uh, through teaching, uh, in primarily in the academy. But um, but you need to understand that you need to keep that in mind. So when I when I talk about a pastoral hegemony, when I talk about pastors, I'm not I'm not belittling. Um, the, the the role of the pastor, or if your church tradition doesn't like the term pastor, then substitute it for the word elder. That's fine. It's it's, it's the equivalent there in the scriptures. Overseer, if you prefer that. So so what, what what am I saying? Basically, here's what we have. Um, within the traditionally Western world, and I'll say we'll zoom into North America here, um, for the most part. The notion of ministry that exists through the church, in and through the church, is filtered through a pastoral understanding of everything that she does. In other words, there there is not an apostolic framework, there's not an apostolic lens, there's not an apostolic, if you will, imagination into which the context is being filtered, and then the practical outworking of ministry is to be displayed. The filter by which everything passes through is a pastoral filtering system, and that, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, we we basically have a history uh, of um, civilization on this continent uh, when it comes to Christianity that was basically a colonial approach. Uh, you had uh, instant churches coming across on ships from Western Europe, and Landing on the shores of what would become the United States and Canada, and basically uh, starting worship gathering, starting instant church. Uh, clearly, there are examples of people like um, the early Methodist uh, movement, the early Baptists on the frontiers. You have the example of the Moravians at times, um, and other groups. But for the most part, everything was was still was filtered through a pastoral approach, and I would even say even some of those. Um, Examples in Methodist tradition, Baptist tradition, and the um, and the early Moravians uh, had a very heavy uh, understanding of pastoral ministry related to uh, the work that they were doing, even though it was oftentimes seen as missionary or apostolic uh, by some. And so, what we what we find ourselves in today is a, a situation whereby, when it comes to reaching unbelievers, um. It, we basically operate from a pastoral approach. So this this kind of pastoral uh, mentality, if you will, it, it assumes oftentimes that we reside in a reached context. Now, a context where there are lost people, don't get me wrong, but it assumes a reached context with the belief that pastoral ministry is sufficient for the needed disciple-making activities. For unbelievers living in environments within the shadow of the steeple, it is thought uh, that Um, establish church ministries, what is necessary to reach them and to assimilate them into church membership. But however, here's the thing we need to keep in mind, however, cultural and worldview shifts have been occurring, making such methods and strategies difficult to execute with the same effectiveness as they were executed yesteryear. So cultural gaps have been growing between believers and non-believers. In the United States, for example, evangelical constituency hovers about a quarter of the population, and it's been like that for some time. And it should actually cause the church to wonder if maybe the predominant approach to reaching the country, reaching the lostness, the predominant method and strategy um, has actually reached its maximum potential, in the sense that we're not seeing the shifting of that quarter of the population, so to speak. So whenever the church becomes more established in her functions, um, disciple-making activity, churches, structures, organizations, they become filtered through an apostolic, or excuse me, through a pastoral lens. And the result is that methods and strategies that support ongoing pastoral training and established church development um, generally have little attention toward the apostolic labors. So you have methods and strategies which are absolutely necessary and essential and important for life and ministry in this North American context, but there is this exclusion of the apostolic type of ministry. And so, for example, even, even the predominant—I'll just give you an example. So the predominant approach to, to church planting activities in North America, in the United States and Canada— the predominant methodology and strategy is to is to plant churches by starting with pastoral leadership and gathering long-term kingdom citizens together to unite to be the local expression of the body of Christ in a particular community and then to be engaged in disciple-making activities now while i've been involved in that while i've trained people to be a part of that i'm not anti that That is not the apostolic model that we see in the New Testament if we're looking for something to give us definition and shape to this thing called church planting. In fact, what you see is really just the opposite. And that is, you have these apostolic teams that enter into lostness, into fields of lostness, and they continue to do evangelism until disciples are made. And then they gather those new disciples together to be the local expressions of the universal body of Christ and then to raise up and appoint out of those new believers their own elders, into which those new congregations will be engaging locally and globally. And so uh, that is just one example. I mean, if you begin to even think about the way that uh, we, bring, we do ministerial training um, in, in this context, I mean, for the most part, uh, our approaches to training, particularly through the academy— our approaches to training are generally to train pastors. Again, don't get me wrong. I am all for pastoral training. I'm all for pastoral training at multiple levels. Um, so so I'm not anti that. But whenever that becomes the the primary understanding of what we are to be training for, we often either do one of two things. We either neglect the apostolic type of training or... We take the apostolic and attempt to make it fit into the pastoral base of training that has been established. And I think this is seen in, in many of our uh, seminaries and colleges today, whereby you, you have training options that are available for uh, those people that we will call missionaries. But yet when you begin to look at the overall programs of what they're doing, uh, there is a great deal of their training that is designed primarily for uh, well-established local church ministries. And again, if we're looking to the New Testament for a definition of what is this notion of what we have come to call, at least by the 1600s, missionaries, um, that apostolic understanding, that apostolic framework, is that while there is a great concern for established churches, um, the apostolic tends to spend a great deal of time among those that are unbelievers, where there is little to no structure in place. And so how do you train, how do you prepare people for the field uh, in light of uh, a ministry calling that is involving them going into the kingdom of darkness and, and seeing ecclesiastical structures come into existence, rather than going into... A context where the kingdom of God is existing with his people already in place, with mature church structures already uh, organized, and they need to go in there and and be able to manage and oversee uh, and adjust those particular structures. So it's, it's a completely different approach. It's a completely different paradigm of thinking when it comes to uh, the approach to training in a North American context I mean if you think about for example just the whole post Christianized shifts that have occurred in not only the Western world but in a North American context I mean you've got religious shifts that are happening um, you've got uh, you know changes that are taking place with um, with even in, even within Protestant and Catholic traditions uh, you're seeing the rise of the nuns in onES uh, that's taking place you're, you're seeing um, tied into that, the, the migration of so many unreached people groups from all over the world to traditionally Western contexts, bringing various religious perspectives. And so we, we find ourselves in a context, in an environment whereby I believe that the cultural shifts have, have progressed to such a point that in many contexts throughout the United States and throughout Canada, that the only way that the gospel is going to be able to spread among a particular people group, many people groups in certain communities and contexts, certain urban environments and rural contexts, is when an apostolic approach is being used rather than many of the pastoral approaches that we have often relied on for the most part since the, since the Europeans came uh, to the shores of the North American continent. So, I also said, you know, in this podcast, I wanted us to take a moment to kind of think about the the apostolic imagination, and it's bearing on just our use of resources, and thinking about the resources that we have. And while there, you know, there, there, there are many different ways that we can think about this. You know, resources involve people, they also involve time, they also involve opportunities, but clearly they involve the issue of money. And it is difficult to find... Um, uh, accurate information when it comes to doing research, it's difficult to find accurate information on the use of financial resources. But what do we know what what have we what have we um, seen? what are we seeing when it comes to financial resources and the gospel advancement? In other words, if we truly are a people that are seeking to carry out the mission of God in the world, does the apostolic imagination, you know his imagination is it is it Is it something that is significantly guiding our thoughts and our steps and what we do? Um, So let's go back to 2001 for a second. So in 2001, David Barrett and Todd Johnson uh, published this, this large work in 2001. It's called World Christian Trends, A.D. 30 to A.D. 2200. And in this book, they estimated that the church has an enormous amount of financial wealth. In fact, they estimated that there was an annual... $270 billion found in the church's pocketbook, if you will. And and they make this statement, and here I'll quote them. They say, Christians have enough money to implement even their wildest dreams of worldwide ministry and global evangelization, end quote. Now, what we find is that we reside in a time whereby even though the money is there, the the imagination is not channeling it in a direction related to the global task before us. In fact, Joshua Project just recently noted uh, that limited resources directed toward the unreached is one of five contemporary Great Commission challenges. So it appears on the whole that to build off of Barrett and Johnson's quote, it appears on the whole that global disciple-making is not part of Christians' wildest dreams. Um, Continue on with Barrett and Johnson their work. They note that approximately 95% of that income amount, that $270 billion, 95% is assigned to the needs of the church and her ministries at home. So the remaining 5%, where does that go? It goes to support world mission. So the average church member—now, this was their study in 2001—so the average church member who gave about $2.75 each week basically provided $0.15 cents for missions. Um, at the time of their findings, however, the reality was even more troubling because, for example, they divided the world into areas whereby there was uh, uh uh, churches that were developing, and then the least reached of the least reached, if you will. And so, what did they find? They found out that of the fifteen billion dollars that the church was giving to missions, thirteen billion supported pastoral ministry in parts of the world, what they called World C, places where they were over ninety-five percent evangelized, and church members comprised sixty percent of the population. They also found that. 1.8 billion went to support evangelism in countries where the population was over half evangelized. And so bottom line, what does this mean? It mean that it, it means that in 2001, only about 250 million dollars, 250 million dollars, went to the least reach to the least reach. Percentage-wise, what does that mean? It means. Point one percent, not even one percent. Point one percent of the church's annual income went to the unreached peoples. This was in two thousand and one. This was many many years after nineteen seventy four, when the evangelical church began heavily talking about the hidden peoples or the unreached people groups. So let's fast forward until uh, until today. So in twenty twenty, uh, Gina Zerlow Todd Johnson, who was a part of the 20, or 2001 study, and Peter Crossing, they uh, did another uh, research project, and they projected that by mid-year of 2020, the annual amount for what they called foreign missions would have increased to, listen to this, $47 billion. And by 2025, that number is expected to soar to $60 billion. Now, the article reporting their research did not address how much was allocated to areas of the world where the church was established and developing and areas of the world where the least reached or the least reached existed, um, but I am willing to say that I believe that it's likely that the percentages probably have changed very little since 2001 and the findings that uh, they had then. Um, to kind of jump back to 2001, in a in a survey of 810 North American mission agencies published in the Mission Handbook, it was noted that though 94% of all U.S. workers were being used for evangelism and discipleship activities, so almost all of them, 94%, um, only 59% of the overseas monies was actually applied to that category of evangelism and discipleship. However, only 3% of the workers were engaged in relief and development, but yet they were responsible for 35% of the financial income. Uh, Canada, not much different. Among Canadian agencies, 82% of the workers in 2001 were involved in evangelism and discipleship activities, and they were receiving 31% of the overseas monies designated for that task, yet just over 8% of their missionary force, was geared toward relief and development. However, R&D was responsible for 67% of the income. Um, very interesting, very interesting, especially in light of a previous podcast in which I talked about the notion that among evangelicals, Uh, Right now, the majority perspective is that when it comes to any kind of priorities in the mission of God, there are no priorities. And so evangelism is considered just one uh, possibility of church activities among a variety of church activities. Uh, You may want to go back and check that out. Um, But let's think about 2017. So in the 22nd edition of the Mission Handbook, and by the way, the handbook is basically a, a book that... Uh, has a listing of all of the North American agencies, agencies that are headquartered in North America, um, mission agencies, that is. Uh, In the handbook that was published in 2017, they noted that the North American mission agencies that they surveyed had over $12 billion in annual revenues in the previous year, so in 2016. It was reported that from 98 until 2016, the percentage of all agencies indicating a primary activity in the evangelism and discipleship category "...had dropped significantly. A decline of almost 19 points was observed, reducing the statistic from 63% to 44%. While evangelism, church planting, and discipleship remain as top priorities among mission agencies in North America, the percent of agencies noting a primary activity in the category of relief and development actually doubled from 1998 to 2016." Increasing from eleven percent to twenty-three percent. Education and training that ca- that category also increased by ten percentage points in that period of time. So again, what what what's going on? There, something is happening among evangelicals, and it's been going on for at least twenty years, uh, related to the notion of this thing that we call evangelism and church planting, and our financial resources, and so. If financial resources reflect where our heart is, our passion, our interest, if that's where our, our our treasures found and our heart is attached to that, then what we're seeing and what we have been seeing is, is something that I would say is not reflective of the apostolic imagination when it comes to the use of financial resources throughout the world. When it comes to the prioritization given to the evangelistic work of preaching the gospel among the nations of the world. And so I would say, as we move forward, some of the things that we, I believe, we need to keep in mind is that we need to really think about in the North American context uh, uh, basically, how do you fund apostolic teams? So uh, and it's safe to say that the church clearly lacks vision, kingdom vision. if. Uh, if measured by how much we're allotting to reach the nations with the gospel when it comes to our finances. And so I would say we've got to really begin to think about, well, what does it mean to fund apostolic teams in a Western context? And what is that going to mean? Well, that's going to mean, going back to the Scriptures and looking at how apostolic teams were funded through churches, through individuals, through hands-on work, personal you know, vocation. But at the same time, that's going to open up a whole realm of thinking about the issue of training, so, how do you then train apostolic teams? How do you put support structures in place, assessment processes in place? How do you uh, as a as a local church begin to call out equip uh, and partner and provide pastoral care for the teams that you're sending? That brings us to a whole other issue, and that is we've got to learn to train pastors to develop an apostolic imagination. It's not to train pastors to become. Uh, apostles, I'm not saying that, I'm saying train pastors to develop an apostolic imagination so that they would know how to lead their congregations as they discharge their pastoral responsibilities at the same time of how those congregations can be involved in apostolic development, equipping, shepherding, and sending. And that kind of brings us to another big thing to keep in mind, and that is the issue of partnership development, because on a global scale, so beyond the North American context, On a global scale, the church in the West is really going to need to think in terms of what does it look like to partner with other brothers and sisters throughout the world? We're talking about legitimate partnerships whereby there's an equality at the table, whereby there's shared leadership, there's shared responsibilities, there's shared contributions, shared respect that takes place. This is a growing field right now in the area of missiology. A lot of pieces of literature are being published on this topic. But we need to think about those matters as well. And circling back around, I'll leave it on this. When it comes to the North American context, as brothers and sisters have migrated from all over the majority world contexts, how do we then partner with them in the United States and Canada to continue carrying out the apostolic work of the church in this context as well? Well, I know we've covered a lot of territory, a lot of uh, food for thought here today, folks. I just want to say thanks so much for um, listening. Thanks so much for taking the uh, time out to think about the apostolic imagination and recognizing that it influences everything that we do, not only abroad, but also at home as well. Until next time. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Ben. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore ben. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.